Welcome to The Bible and the English Major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we analyze stories from scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. this podcast, please follow it wherever you're listening today and find me on social media. I love to hear from listeners. Links are in the show notes. Hey there, in just a minute, you'll be listening to a conversation between Dr. Jennifer Garcia Bashaw and me about how great it is to read the Bible like an English major. We have a lot of fun together. You're also going to hear about some of her research, so I thought I would throw you a couple definitions. The first one is the idea of scapegoats or scapegoating. Scapegoats are those who are made to bear the blame or sin of an entire society. Let me read to you from Jennifer's book so you know exactly what she's talking about there. Human scapegoats must be similar enough to the members of the society that they can carry its pollution, but also dissimilar, other enough to be singled out to bear a community's blame. They are accused of crimes that the society abhors, often extreme taboos, but their guilt or innocence of these crimes is beside the point. Scapegoats tend to be those who are weak, marginalized, and without family or allies in order to preclude retaliation on their behalf, end quote. So that's the idea of scapegoats, scapegoating. The other word I want to throw out there for you is mimesis, which as far as I can tell is just a (laughs) fancy word for imitation. So when you hear Jennifer talk about those things, just be prepared. You know what they mean. Yay you. Let's get on with the show. Hey, it's Conversations with a Friend Day, and I have a very special guest that I'm so excited to introduce to all of you. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. Remember, everybody, when I went to Theology Beer Camp last October, Jennifer was one of the speakers there, and she was my favorite. I could tell, even as she was teaching us how warm she was and how genuine and also how brilliant at the same time. So I am thrilled, Jennifer, that you are willing to come and talk with us. After Theology Beer Camp, I ordered your book, Scapegoats, The Gospel Through the Eyes of Victims. It's a huge reason, actually, why I wanted to do a story on these first verses in John 8. So, Jennifer, welcome Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do. Bring it on. I teach New Testament and Christian ministry courses at Campbell University in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. And it's a Baptist university. I teach undergraduates and so really enjoy that job. I do some work for the Bible for Normal People podcast, which is very fun. I come from a Baptist background. 
But if anybody out there is Baptist, you know, that could be pretty diverse. There are a lot of different kinds of Baptists. But I did grow up Southern Baptist. In mostly in Texas, I was an army brat, so we moved around a bit. I actually got a call to ministry, as we call it, in high school. But it was really hard to decipher what that meant for me because in my church, women only, they were children's directors. We knew of women missionaries, but women didn't speak from the pulpit. Women didn't pray in public in the church. So the idea uh, of me being called to ministry and maybe going on to be a pastor was just sort of foreign. I didn't know what that looked like. I did sort of follow that as I went to Baylor University and then on to seminary. And it's not just Southern Baptists that resist women pastors all over Texas. It's really hard for women to be um, senior pastors. And so I figured that out along the way in seminary mostly. And then I decided that maybe my path needed to lead somewhere else uh, instead of constantly banging my head against the stained glass ceiling. And so I went to get my PhD in New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary and love, love, love studying the New Testament. But I will say that I always sort of kept a a foot in the church because I don't necessarily thrive in all academic settings. And so I was a minister and I got ordained American Baptist while I was out there in Pasadena um, and worked at a church there. And then after I graduated, I ended up getting a job teaching. I have a really great husband named Carrie, and then our kids are um, 17, 14, and 11-year-old boys. So yeah, that's sort of my story. Thank you. And now you're celebrating your one-year book anniversary. Congratulations. Tell us about this book of yours and how it came to be and what motivated you. So Renee Girard is one of the main people that I use as a background to my book. I really wanted to write something on a lay level and not just writing for scholars or academics. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a little while to figure out what that was going to look like. I taught for so long and teaching full-time is just so time consuming Mm -hmm. that I didn't sit down and write something right after I, I graduated. But in the last several years, I started feeling this pressure with society to get a new way of looking at Jesus and the gospels out there into the world. Mm -hmm. And when I say new, I don't mean newfangled, like nobody's ever done it, but because Christians have been, especially in America, have been acting very much not like Jesus in in the (laughs) way that they have interacted with society or demanded things during the, the pandemic or politically how they show up in the world. They haven't been Um, looking like Jesus. And I thought, what is the problem? And there's a lot of problems, of course. (laughs) Like, how did this happen? And there are many historical reasons and political social reasons. I think that one reason that falls under my study is that we do not read the Gospels well. We don't talk about Jesus well. We don't focus on Jesus' stories or read them in a way that helps us really truly understand what they're about. I think that we tend to just like little pieces of the Bible. We like to like focus on verses. Evangelicals like Paul like to read pieces of letters. But most people don't know how to sit down and read a whole gospel account and understand what's going on there. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write something that's going to help people understand the gospel stories a little bit better, especially Jesus and Jesus's teachings and ministry. But I also wanted to use Gerard. And so I think Gerard provides a really cool way to enter into the gospel narratives and also gives us this big picture view of humanity and the world that helps us read the gospels better. So that was my reason behind writing. I loved 
how you wrote about it in your introduction. So I'm just going to read it for everybody. You say, I am convinced that people in the church disregard and remain silent about oppression in society, not because they're apathetic, but because they deeply misunderstand Jesus and the gospel. Then at the end of that page, you said, the radical message the gospel writers communicated about Jesus in their context should help us in our context. It should lead Christians to the truth that God is on the side of the scapegoat. And when the church participates in, condones, or ignores scapegoating, it opposes the work of God in our world. That is new for so many Christians, and especially white Christians. Mm -hmm. That is a new message for so many of us. So I am grateful for your book, and I'm hoping that can guide us into a better understanding. Tell me more about Rene Girard, because before I read your book, I hadn't heard of him. No, there are so many people that don't know Girard. And it's because, well, he's an academic, but he also <laughs> is this, this kind of scholar that he was at first a historian and literary critic. Hmm. Like his very first scholarship came out. He was reading the great novels and mostly European novels. And he noticed sort of this pattern. Fiction actually shows us things that are true about the world, right? Um, and a lot of times, sort of the more, the higher level fiction written, especially by people who are masters of literature, can reveal things about us that we don't know, that are kind of not on the surface. And so he sees these patterns in these novels. And the first thing he no notices is that imitation or what he calls mimesis is at the heart of who we are as human beings. And so we learn language and culture by looking at people around us and imitating them. He also sees that most of the time we tend to imitate other people and other people's desires. So the things that we want for our life don't actually come from us hmm. <laughs> autonomously, right? right? We look and see how other what other people want, and then we want that thing. And then this mimesis becomes wanting the thing which is acquisitive mimesis. And then it becomes wanting to be the person that you are imitating. And so then this causes conflict because mm. that, that kind of causes a rivalry amongst people. And so this is what he calls mimetic rivalry. Well, he, he notices that in novels, but then he thought, mm, I wonder if this is a, a human problem. Can I go back in history and um, anthropology and look and find this in other pieces of literature, mythology and things. So he starts looking at mythology from early civilizations. And he says, no, we've always done this. And he also notices that early on, before we had these elaborate systems of government and laws, the way that people dealt with this conflict that came from mimesis is that they had certain rituals that they did, but they also had this practice that he's going to call the scapegoat mechanism. So as conflict rises between individuals, then it infects a whole society, mm -hmm. which is also mimesis. You're mimicking the kind of conflict and violence that you see around you. So it, it causes violence to rise in society. I and mean, it gets to a point where there needs to be some sort of escape valve or else the society will destroy itself. And so what he sees happening in different civilizations is that they focus all of their conflict and their anger and their violence on one victim. So it becomes, instead of all against all, um, it becomes all against one. And so what that does is that it re sort of releases, it has that es escape valve process where they blame a victim, usually the victim's completely innocent, but they blame that victim. They put 
all their sin on that, their anger, their violence on that person. They usually either exile them violently or kill them. And then there's like a peace that happens in the society. Hmm. And so they kind, of, they kind of do this over and over and over again, and they ritualize it. So sometimes you're getting ritual sacrifices and things like that. He notices this and he gets to Hebrew scriptures and then to the New Testament. He realizes there's something a little different about the way that the Bible talks about violence and victims than from other societies that he's seen. Mm -hmm. What he finds is that the Hebrew Bible and then the New Testament tell stories about the victims instead of hiding their stories. And that's really important to the scapegoat mechanism because as soon as a society finds out that they're blaming an innocent person, that there's a victim there and not someone that is guilty, then they can't continue the scapegoat process. So it Mm -hmm. interrupts the scapegoat process. So he says, okay, the Hebrew Bible is on the way to this because the Hebrew Bible tells the story of Abel's blood crying out from the ground, of Hagar, of Joseph, of people who are victims of larger sort of violence in society and kind of points us out of that violence. But he says that the climax uh, of revealing scapegoat mechanisms and also raising the voice of the victim comes in the New Testament with the Gospels. And so because Jesus ends up um, being a scapegoat, like other scapegoats throughout history, the scapegoated by his society, the religious powers, the political powers, scapegoat him. And then the Gospels tell his story in a way that everyone knows that he's innocent. So what they do in their storytelling is they reveal the scapegoat mechanism that happens throughout history and societies, and then shows us that Jesus should be the end of scapegoats. He should be the last scapegoat. If we recognize what we did as human beings to Jesus, then we should be able to recognize what we do in society to victimize people and scapegoat people. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of his whole theory in a nutshell. And I apply this to the Gospels. But also take it a little bit further to say, yes, Jesus' death as a scapegoat teaches us something about the nature of humanity and how we can proceed without scapegoating. But he also shows us how to treat scapegoats in our society because he interacts with the victims in his society. And so we see him centering the experiences and voices of, of people who are normally marginalized. And the people who become scapegoats are usually people who are on the edges of society, who are marginalized, who are different. And so the three groups that I talk about in my book are women who have been marginalized throughout history, right? The poor and the infirm, and then outsiders. Outsiders are the ones that we, especially today, see being scapegoated if you look around at society and say, oh, immigrants or migrants are coming in and taking our jobs and they're all drug dealers and they're going (laughs) to harm us and hurt us. They're blaming loss of jobs on them because they're outsiders. They're different than us. And so we can put blame on them instead of looking at our own culpability and sin in our society. I did, Hagar, in connection with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, two women who see God and name God and perform theology, really. The thing that always got me about her is that they're telling her story. The Israelites had no reason to talk about this poor Egyptian slave girl Mm because they don't treat her well. To see in your book the idea that her story is told Mm -hmm. just like the story of the Israelites when they are enslaved is told, just Mm -hmm. like Joseph's story is told. There is a history in Scripture, both Hebrew Bible and now New Testament, of telling the stories of the victims. Most 
societies tell their legends from the perspective of the hero. There's part of that in the Bible, too, but that it also includes the stories of the victims is pretty cool. So much literature, so much history throughout human history is told by people in power, right? And so they are not usually going to tell stories about them that make themselves look bad, right? right? But a lot of the stories in the Hebrew Bible make their heroes, you know, Abraham or Moses or David, look look guilty, right? No, these are victims too, and we need to talk about their stories as well. So you get both. It's still in many places told from the, the position of power, but because that victim's voice comes out and then climaxes, as Gerard says, in the Gospels, I think it's significant. Just to see that the heart of God seeing the victim, that feels obvious to say, but that it's been reflected in literature of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament from the very beginning. It's hard to deny it, but I feel like so many Christians, we haven't been taught to see it that way. So it shouldn't be an aha moment, but it is, right? But it is. Yeah. It's been, I don't want to even say kept from us. It's just hidden because of the, the perspective that we have, the way that Churches teach the Bible, the political forces really in America that have turned us against the marginalized and oppressed. I think all of those things coalesce to make it so we just can't read the New Testament well. Yeah. So you say that the gospel story is about a victim, written by victims, and featuring victims. Can you yes. tell us more about that and why it's important to understand that? Yeah, because I, I think what happens with our current reading of Scripture, we think about Christianity as what it is today, which is the victor or the victors, right? But we don't tend to think about the people who originally wrote the Bible were persecuted people, were Christians who were a very small minority, often scapegoated in the Roman Empire. And so the people who are writing the story are victims of their society. They're in an occupied country um, of the Roman Empire, but then themselves, they are not the educated, not the wealthy, not the powerful people, right? The ones who are the actual writers. But then they're telling the story of Jesus who, again, comes to earth the God comes to earth, not, you know, as a powerful person in a powerful place, not in Rome or anything like that, but in uh, a backwoods area on the edge of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And he chooses voluntary poverty, does not have a home when he has his ministry. He's walking around with the dregs of society, and he himself is <laughs> considered the dregs of society. And he's the star of our of our story, right? Yep. But we think about Jesus in a different way, I think, even today. We don't like to place him necessarily in his context. We definitely don't like to see him as a dark-skinned Middle Eastern homeless man, right? right? That's not how we see Jesus. But he is the subject of their stories. And then he, the things that he does in his ministry, the people who star in his particular stories and his parables and the people who are the people he interacts with, that he heals, that he dines with, these are all people lower in society to marginalize people. With the exception of every once in a while, he interacts with someone from the upper crust of society and then some religious leaders. But the people that get the most attention in the narratives are actually the people who are victims of their society. M more women's stories are told in Luke 
than anywhere we see in that kind of literature in that time period. Mm -hmm. So the women are highlighted, people who are sick, people who are poor, they are highlighted in these stories. And so it is a story written by victims, about victims. And then Jesus, of course, is the victim, hopefully to end all scapegoating. It doesn't happen exactly that way. (laughs) Right. And you said that most Christians today, at least American ones, we don't get that. I wonder if it has to do with our very individualized idea of salvation. Mm. So when we tend to think about Jesus, and a lot of times the gospel is presented to people as Jesus died for your sins, just for you, and you accept Jesus, and you're going to go to heaven. That's so individualized that when we think about Jesus, we just think about him as our own personal Jesus, right? Right. (laughs) Like the one who just is just about us. And it's because we don't look at salvation in the way that it's really talked about in scripture, in a more collective sense, in what happens in society, what happens when Jesus is on earth interacting with people and then dies and then rises from the dead? Like, how does that affect society? Not just how does that affect me and my salvation, Mm -hmm. right? So we have not asked the right questions and we definitely have not talked about salvation in a way that is expressed in the gospels. So how would you express it? Yeah. So it's so interesting when you think about, look, that common way that we talk about Jesus dying for our sins, or if you want to say there's some language like God sacrifices his own son, um, that none of that language is in the gospels. The gospels all tell the story of Jesus. They've spent a lot of time on his ministry and his teachings, right? His teachings about the kingdom of God. So if you were to articulate the gospel from the gospels, you would have to say something about the kingdom of God, which is God breaking in to society in this Jesus and Jesus's life, showing us the priorities of God, because that's sort of what the kingdom of God means, like Mm -hmm. the reign, the priorities of God. And when Jesus does that, he turns everything upside down. The people who are important in society are no longer the people who are marginalized are the ones that are um, going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this reversal is a big part, I think, of the gospel. But then you have to follow the story. You see his ministry and his teachings about the kingdom, but then he pushes against the powers in his society because of the people that he's around. So you see Jesus upsetting the religious powers and then eventually the political powers. And so if if you follow that storyline and then you ask at the end when he gets crucified, why was he crucified? The gospels don't say, oh, God sacrificed Jesus or Jesus is dying for our sins. They don't say that. They tell us the story of what happened. And that is that all the powers in society turned against him. And there was this sort of wave of people sort of either blaming him or leaving him. And then he dies because of the, the society and what we tend to do as humans. And that is participate in cycles of violence that end up hurting the victims in our society. And so if you just follow that storyline, you get the idea that, oh, there's something actually going on that has to do with humanity in general, revealing something to us, and then what the powers of society are like, and how can we push against them, right? There's a non-violent solution that Jesus offers us in that. And so when people start talking about God sacrificing Jesus, they're putting violence back into the idea of salvation, whereas Jesus is taking it out of it. Like Jesus is showing us a nonviolent solution. And he does have to die. He does die as a um, scapegoat. But again, it's supposed to show us not that God has sacrificed Jesus, but that we continue to sacrifice innocent victims. And when we recognize that, then we can actually stop 
doing that. Right. And if yeah. we followed him in the way he lived his life, yes, then that would be the thing that ends our need to scapegoat. Yeah, Others. that would prevent that would prevent scapegoats from being scapegoated because we would bring them into the center. Yes. We would bring their voices in to be heard. So then they're no longer marginalized and able to be scapegoated by the powerful and by people in society. Yeah. So the way we the way Jesus died and also the way he lived is important yeah. to us as Christians. I'll just say that I'm very excited that you and I have similar interests. I did not study literature, but I'd always been someone um, that was very interested in literature. And then as I started studying the Bible, I definitely applied more of the sort of narrative criticism mm -hmm. to my reading of scripture. And so I actually wanted at one point to get a, a PhD in Bible and literature, but it's such a narrow right. subject. It wouldn't have been a good thing to do, but I just love what you do with this English major idea. So I'm really excited to be having conversation with you. I will tell you that when I teach the Bible and I have like different kind of students in my class, the English majors are always the ones that read the Bible best. <laughs> yeah. No, they do. They because they know how to read literature. Yeah. And that's what the Bible is. And I think uh, other people don't treat the Bible that way, but they are the best interpreters of scripture. So yeah. 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 I just love to see the patterns of what yes. those authors are doing. Cause then you get to the real real point of the story. It's so easy to read it and just miss the point. But when you read it carefully, then you get to the good stuff. Because we have four gospels and what we tend to do is harmonize them all and just tell this story of Jesus that mushes all four of them together. But then we miss so much of what the authors were trying to do. They were careful yeah. in the way they crafted their stories. And we miss all of that when we lump right. it all together. Yeah. Right. So, And they were way smarter than I knew. Way brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writers. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant writers. yeah. So, were they really this brilliant, or were there so many sources for the stories they mm -hmm. told that they just took the best parts of each source, or was that the Holy Spirit? I thought, oh, these first couple stories, I'm just getting lucky to find this much, but I am now in the firm opinion that I'm going to find this much. If I work hard, yeah, I will find this much on every story. And it blows no, me that's away. Right. Yeah, I think personally, all of the above are true, that there are lots of little sources written in oral that they have to work with. But then they also piece it together in such a brilliant way. Even when Matthew follows Mark's storyline or whatever, he still adds his own things. And he, he changes little details here and there in order to fit into his motifs and his themes. Like, so they're brilliant. And also they're working with good pieces of stories and good stories. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit is involved somehow. How? I don't know. But I do feel like the Holy Spirit's involved as well. Right. And I feel like some people get scared to read the Bible as literature because then maybe it's not all 100% true. You get into some scary territory for people. And I understand. I have had some of those Oh, like, what does it mean that this story we're studying right now is in the form of a Greek tragedy? What do we do with that? Okay. But right. at the same time, it's all so much more beautiful yeah. when you can see that, too. So there's a new tension there. And what are the truths that you can see that will always be true? Yes. Even if the story didn't truly happen exactly as it's told. Right. The first step is to to get people to 
read the Bible in a better way is to get them to admit that if something has happened historically in a certain way, that that's not the most important thing for us to know, right? Usually you can talk about the way we tell history is very different than the way ancient people told history. But if you move people away from asking the question, but did it really happen this way? If you move them away from that, then you can get much more depth. What are the authors trying to tell us? Some of the authors probably were with Jesus. They understood his message really well, and they're trying to communicate something. Mm -hmm. So they felt okay taking stories and molding them so that they could get their point across. So there's trust involved. We have to trust that the writers are trying to teach us true things about Jesus. But then we also have to say, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be 100% historically accurate. Because some of that, I mean, we can't even get back to that. Right. How would we ever know that? Right. Yeah. So we have to ask the better questions. What is the author trying to say here? The authors were more like painters than Mm -hmm. forensic photographers. Yes. Right. That's a really good, yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Because forensic photographers, not even just artistic photographers, but forensics, like they are looking for the exact scientific facts. And that is not what the biblical authors were. They were artists. Yes. And when we try to read them like, forensic, you know, documents from today, then we just, we miss them. We miss their point. You said, I've always read the Bible like an English major. And I was like, oh, kindred spirits. (laughs) I think think so. I think so. (laughs) Should we get into our Bible story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's do it. One thing that I have not covered yet is its history of, does it belong in the Bible at all? (laughs) I haven't touched on that. So enlighten us, please. (laughs) It's so interesting. I I think it does belong in the Bible, but the fact is it was most likely not original to the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. So where it sits right now, the beginning of John chapter 8, most of the early manuscripts of John don't have it. It'll show up in some manuscripts there. There's a couple of manuscripts that will have it in Luke that has an unstable textual history. That's what text critics of the Bible will say. It's unstable. (laughs) Obviously, it was an important story to the early Christians because they were trying to fit it in somewhere. To me, that makes it seem like it was important. They wanted it in there. (laughs) They bent over backwards to make sure it got in. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I usually don't say when I'm talking about, oh, John wrote this. Right. Because we don't know who wrote it, but that it is fit in here in an interesting way. And there are some like themes um, that tied into John. It also could have fit okay in Luke, I think. So from that geeky English major perspective, whoever did stick this in here, did they tweak the story a little bit so that it would fit well? Very possible. The story was being tweaked all through, it seems like the second and third and even into the fourth centuries, because we'll see different church fathers commenting on it. And they each have some different details, it seems. And so I think that it was in flux. It was being shaped through those years. And so, yeah, when did its final form happen? Uh, We don't know. (laughs) Yeah. 
Tell a little bit about the Church Fathers, too, because part of its instability is because people weren't totally comfortable with it. Yeah, so there's two lines of thinking in this. One is that there were a couple of Church Fathers that said Jesus being so lenient on an adulteress in the story wasn't actually a good thing, especially because they cared a lot about chastity in the early centuries of the Church, and especially keeping women virtuous. Right. And so that kind of went against their message. They wanted Jesus, sure, be forgiving Jesus, but also talk about how how wrong it is or something like that. <laughs> right. So that's a possibility. But it's also interesting when you trace the history that the story seems to get a little more anti-Jewish hmm. as it goes along in history, as maybe the Christians become more and more anti-Jewish. Sure. And so that is also unstable in the story. It's fun to look back and kind of piece things together, but we just don't know why there was resistance to it, why there was so much flux why it ended up being in different places. We can conjecture, but we don't know. We, we don't, don't know, know for sure. sure. Yeah. 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 When you talk about the story, you put it in the form of a play, which mm-hmm. I really like because the way you talk about how it gets blocked and the movement of the characters really helps us to picture exactly what's happening. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think scholars have noticed for a while how important in this story the movements of people are Mm -hmm. because there actually aren't a lot of words in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially Jesus doesn't say very much. And so as you think about it on stage and notice when Jesus stoops or stands or when he's talking to somebody or not talking to somebody, then you start noticing more and more things about it. The thing that for me was most important as I was reading through it and then also thinking about Gerard is how Jesus takes the negative focus off of the woman and directs it in its proper place. The religious leaders bring the woman in front of all these people thinking about how mortifying that is to be dragged in front of people and be the object of scorn. They're trying to scapegoat her. They're scapegoating her for the sexual sin. She's the only one there. The the person, the other person involved in this adultery was not there. And so then you get the idea, okay, this is something that, that they're used to doing that societies are used to doing, like placing sexual blame on uh, women. Mm -hmm. And so here she is being condemned and Jesus has to answer and figure out what do I do in this situation? And the first thing he does is take the attention away from her by stooping and writing in the ground. And this is such a fascinating piece of the story because you just want to know what it is he's writing. How many sermons have been written about that? I was just reading an article by this woman named Jennifer Knust, and she's a text critic. Um, And so she has a whole article on this. And she says there's actually one manuscript that includes something about what he wrote. Really? Like like a scribe stuck it in there. And and it said the scribe had put in there, he wrote all of their sins. And so like, it seems like from the very beginning, people really wanted to know yeah. what it was that he wrote. And so the scribe decided to put it in there, but it, it didn't make it into yeah. the official version because it wasn't in any other version. But people but, have been curious from the very beginning. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But I, I maintain there's a reason that the storyteller did not tell us yes. what he wrote because that was not the important part. Right. You've got to figure out if, the, if they don't tell us that then you have to say, what are they trying to tell us, right? right? And it seems like taking the attention away from the woman was the first thing so that the people don't have this murderous rage focused on her. But then eventually that taking the focus away from the woman becomes putting the focus on 
the accusers and the people who are standing around there. And that's when he utters the famous line about not throwing the first stone. And then the attention is focused inwardly to the people that are there. Mm-hmm. If you're reading through the story, you might not notice it. The line is really important and people notice the line about not throwing the first stone. But I think if you're not thinking about the people that will be there and how this author is staging it, then you miss that Jesus takes the target off of her back. Yeah. So then it, the target goes to where it should go. And that is to the people that are standing there. They're about to get caught up in this frenzied attack on a woman who very well may be innocent, right? Yeah. And he wants to stop that from happening. So you got to look at your own culpability. Then the whole violent mob that was increasing just dies down. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a quiet part of the narrative too, if you're thinking about sound and they just walk away, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you have to think about this in terms of the way it's staged or else you miss a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about how he stops the violence by refusing to judge her and then also by revealing how the mob violence starts with Mm -hmm. one person, the first stone. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a Gerard insight. I got that straight from Gerard. I can't claim that. <laughs> that's okay. You can still tell us more about it. <laughs> yeah, and so because Gerard, when he goes through and, and looks at the scapegoat mechanism, it all starts with one person. One person, like when he's talking about mimetic rivalry, imitating someone, but then the violence between two people and then how that grows. And it becomes what we would call mob violence or a contagion. A lot of people use that word to talk about how violence and anger and vengeance spreads Mm -hmm. in a society. And so when Jesus tells us it's the first person to throw a stone, he shows us it starts with one person, but it will grow into a, a whole mob and then innocent people will die. Right. And which is exactly what Gerard is saying happens with the scapegoat mechanism. So although the storyteller is not coming out and using the word scapegoat and scapegoat mechanism, because these are things that Gerard (laughs) named later on, but it seems that it's a pattern, right, in human history. And the storyteller here must be aware of that that common human way of interacting with violence and with victims because he tells it in a way that we see how tension can be dispelled, how it is that we can stop violence against victims. It starts with one person starts the violence, but one person can also stop the violence. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the one person here that stops the violence by taking the target off the woman's back, which should inform the way that we interact in the world today. If we see someone being blamed, victimized, and we stand up for them, or we draw attention away from them, that stops the whole process. Yeah. And this is why I think the story is so key to the history of humanity, to help us be better human beings. <laughs> this helps us understand that. And so it makes total sense that the early church wanted to include it in there. They're trying so hard to get it in because it's such an important story. Yeah, especially in a society where there was regular public punishment. Somehow the storyteller was familiar with this version of violence. Do you have any idea how often wood stonings happen? Would the author have seen them? We don't have a lot of evidence for that, but it does seem that they it happened. And those are non-government sanctioned 
executions. And so they would have had to have flown under the radar in the Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. or else they would have gotten in trouble. But it seems that there was that kind of taking care of problems internally, if you want to call it that, Mm. in Jewish societies and other societies as well. Too bad we don't have a record of victims of stoning, right? right? But stoning is an interesting historical phenomenon, because when you're thinking about the idea of scapegoating, If you were to stone, say, a scapegoated victim, none of the people there knows who killed that person. So then it's very much that collective violence against one person, Mm -hmm. this anonymity, right, of who did the killing. And so that's why it's interesting. Stoning does come up in various societies. Gerard talks about it as a key way that people treat scapegoated victims. Yeah, because no one has to bear the responsibility of throwing the final rock. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Which is why the first rock is so important. So then you talk about how Jesus then systematically removes the characteristics that make the woman a scapegoat. First, Mm -hmm. he stops the violence. And then he takes away the societal structure that makes her a scapegoat to begin with. Yeah, the way that he treats her and refuses to judge her, but the way that he actually talks to her face-to-face in the end. I loved what you did when you looked and saw who's the subject, who's the object. She's just a, a passive object being used throughout the whole time until Jesus talks to her. And so the fact that he talks to her, that he refuses to condemn her, and the way that he interacts with her in the midst of this religious crowd. He's trying to put everybody on equal ground. Yeah. And that is the way that we can stop people from being scapegoated and, and victimized by taking people who are are usually oppressed and marginalized, blamed, and treating them like everybody else around us, <laughs> bringing them into the center of society, speaking to them like their voice matters and not condemning them, pointing to the guilt of all humanity instead of the guilt of each person. Yeah. I heard a sermon recently, and it's from a New Testament scholar. Her name is Alicia Myers, and she teaches at the same school I do, but she teaches in the Divinity School. But she did this passage, and she's a John scholar. (laughs) She did this passage in chapel the other day, and she put the focus on the idea that it was very possible that this woman accused of adultery she could have just been like having a conversation in public with a man. Hmm. She could be married and she could be having a conversation with another man in public. That in many cases would have been considered adultery. Wow. And so, yeah, so that, but that's how she starts it. But then the end is so interesting because in your analysis of the Greek play, there's like often a reversal at the end, mm-hmm. right? So in her interpretation, the reversal is that at the end, Jesus and the woman are standing alone. Oh. And so, so now he, they're caught in a, an act of adultery, but she, he stands there alone with her, although they could both be accused. Isn't that interesting? That is so cool. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Because then, again, you have to picture it. You have to picture everybody's walked off, and this woman is standing alone with Jesus in a public place. Right. Right. Which was not okay yeah. to do. That's a really good point. And also what the Samaritan woman at the well did. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. I know. I thought it was cool, too. I don't think it's published anywhere. It's just her sermon and her interpretation. But she is a really good John scholar. So. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a good point. There she's guilty or not. I hadn't heard that if she was just standing and speaking with a man that that could be. Or she doesn't have a head covering on. 
can also be considered adultery. Parsing out of what it meant to to be an adulteress, especially a woman. Wow. Because I had heard that if she were being raped, that yes. that would be adultery. True. I had heard that. And I had heard mm-hmm. if she were divorced and remarried, that that That's would right. be adultery. That's- and those are horrible <laughs> mm-hmm. in their own ways. But I hadn't heard just simply having a conversation or being bareheaded. There's so much we don't know about the background. We have to be aware of all the possibilities as we talk about it. And I think that makes people uncomfortable in church because they want want answers. How did it happen? What exactly is going on here? And then you say, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. We don't know. But taking all these things into consideration, what do we see the author doing here? Right. Because it's harder to hold all of those things at once. Yeah. I think especially if we've grown up in a tradition where we think religion is about rules, then we want to know which ones we're breaking, yes. <laughs> or which ones we right. might break, and so we can watch out for them. And if there's more nuance to stories, then there is no cut-and-dry list of, avoid this and you'll be okay. No, there's not. It's more, read all these stories about Jesus and internalize the way he was in the world and do that. Don't yeah. have a list of don't, 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 don't. It's a be, do, Imitate Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I will tell you something. I just finished writing a book for the Bible for normal people. Cool. And it is John for normal people. Nice. So, and get this, writing that scene in a theater way inspired me. And so the whole commentary is a play. I write it like a play. The entire book of John like a play? Yes. Wow. Act one, act two, act three, act four. And then there's scenes and then I stage it and everything. It is very, very different. (laughs) I can't wait to read it. That is so cool. Yeah. So it should be coming out later this year. I mean, I think maybe October-ish. Awesome. Yeah. I'm very intrigued by this idea of John as a play. What I did with this story is I took it out of the scene where it is in. So I go through the whole sort of scene in the temple, go through chapter seven and chapter eight, but I completely skip over this in my staging of that scene. And then I put this story in the intermission. It's a little thing that's being done on stage during intermission that is separated. So did you do that because the author is questionable? Yeah, yeah I did that. That is so because cool. I, I also, the way that I was staging the story before it or the story that is around it, it just it would break it up too much. It breaks up the scene. And so I would have to pause it almost and then have another scene happening somewhere else on stage and then come back, which is awkward. So I was, I just barreled right through chapter seven and eight. And then I just took that one out and put it in the intermission right after that. I love it. That was fun. Oh, I do have a dance number, which is the scene where Jesus gives the bread of life discourse. And the people are coming and asking for bread from him. And so they're like dancing and he's singing. He's a tenor. It's like musical theater. It's not just theater. It's like musical theater. (laughs) I love that. That's so fun. It's definitely going to be different. I just can't wait to see how people react, if they're going to love it or if it's going to be heresy. (laughs) (laughs) Probably both. Both. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing that inspired me to do it this way is that the prologue of John has often been called an overture. Uh How at the beginning of a musical, they'll play like different pieces, like little snippets of the different songs that are going to come later. And that's sort of what the prologue does. And so I compare it to Alexander Hamilton, the song 
in Hamilton, the musical, how it like introduces the key characters and everything like that. Yeah. So I compare it yep. to that. And I, I think it works really well as an overture. That is so fun. Mm-hmm. It's, it was super fun to write. Oh, cool. I'm excited. How do you do this Samaritan Woman at the Well? And how do you do Nicodemus? Oh, so I, I put them together on stage. Okay. So on one side, one on stage left and one's on stage right. And then uh-huh. so then I can do a better job of connecting the two and co- and contrasting nice. the fact that, oh, look, this insider Nicodemus, a uh, religious guy, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get Jesus. Jesus ends up finishing the conversation basically on his own because the guy just doesn't get it. And then juxtaposed with the Samaritan woman who is an outsider. And of course it's daytime compared to nighttime with Nicodemus. And she engages Jesus in this like theological conversation and and gets it. Like at first she doesn't, but along the way she starts understanding what it means, who he is and all of that. And so since I put them both on stage at the same same time and, you know, spotlight over here, spotlight over here, then it ties them together, but also shows how they're different. I think that is a brilliant way, truly, to help people read the Bible like an English major. Oh, good. I just wanted them to feel what was going on in this book. People read John and they trip along on the surface level, pick out verses they like, and then move on. But there's so much going on in John. Right. So if I just slow them down, let them see it and hear it and experience it in different ways, then I think that they're going to understand it better. I can't wait. Mm -hmm. I think you should maybe... Promise me right now that you'll come back and talk to us about yeah. it after it's out. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. I will. I'm so excited about it. That is so great. It's been so great talking to you. You too. Thank you so much again for coming and being super cool. want to know jennifer's current book again it's called scapegoats the gospel through the eyes of victims and your new book is called what john for normal people john for normal people awesome so we will watch for that too thank you very much jennifer isn't she great i love talking with jennifer so through the magic of podcasting Matt and I are traipsing through the mountains of Colorado at this very moment, and you didn't even know. And that means I'm not quite sure when you're going to be able to tune in to the next Bible in the English Major episode, because I'm not quite sure right now when it's going to come out. So here's what I suggest. Go to my website, marnjo.com, sign up to be on my email list so that when a new episode is coming out, you'll be sure to know about it. Or find me on social media, either Facebook or Instagram, M-A-R-E-N dot J-O dot S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. Those are all ways that you can find out when we'll be back in action. Oh, also a reminder for our conversations with friends tier. We are going to do our very first Zoom meeting on July 19th. So let me know you're coming, and I look forward to having that conversation with you. Thanks for listening, and hope you're all well. Bye-bye.